When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great hern feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. This was, or is, a favourite poem of mine, The Peace of Wild Things, by the American poet and environmentalist and farmer, Wendell Berry. I'm John Fanning, and this is the Create with John Fanning podcast. How's it going out there? Hope, hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all keeping healthy amidst this pandemic. Um, so today, this is episode 25 of my series of episodes on the imagination, based around my book, Create. And last time I spoke about process, retreats, and dark nights of the soul. But today I want to talk about distractions, awareness, and sacredness. So, philosophy used to be uh, a way of life. Now it's it's something that's studied by experts, um, usually so that uh, they can teach new experts on how to be experts in, you know, the words of philosophy. But Aristotle and Plato and Heraclitus, Lucretius, all those guys... All the uh, ancient philosophers, they didn't so much study philosophy as lived it as such. They, they practiced it. And it was a way of living. And Buddhists and philosophers of the East call it meditation, or as the wonderful Zen Buddhist uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say, uh, being mindful. And for the most part, we would maybe call it thinking about thinking over here in the West. That's our, the nearest we can get to it, I suppose, in our lexicon. Those kind of lexical prisons I talked about in an earlier episode. It was episode seven, I think. Yeah, it was. It was episode seven. But um, we're not we're not so much... Yeah, well, the idea of thinking about thinking over here in the West, allowing ourselves to to lose our minds instead of being what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would call by being mindful. We're not so much out of our minds, but too distracted by the thoughts inside our heads instead of being aware of those thoughts, instead of just being aware, which is something I want to talk about today. 
um, as regards creativity is concerned uh, and how it is very much a part of the creative process. Uh, as with Blake and Plato's Cave, when I talked about them in episode 16, uh, Doors and, Ca and the Cave, uh, when I talked first about doors, you open the door to a new reality, uh, which is a new awareness. When you start to question the system or systems, these walls I've been talking about, and you've been when you've been conditioned to think these walls and systems are real, when you be you become aware they're really just distractions. Not and that's another thing I wanted to talk about today. So. Not something personal and sacred, but a shadow play on the walls of a cave. So we have to step out of the cave, out of what Blake called the cavern, or the cave, what Plato would call it, and many others after him, uh, out of those dark areas to, to really see, to see the light, to become the perceiver in order to really create, much like uh, what Wendell Berry was talking about in his poem, the one I just read, into what he called the, the piece of wild things. And of course, there's another layer to this as well, to awareness. Awareness is when we, we ask the question, can the perceiver be perceived as such? So this is the furthest we can go as a creative human being out of the cave, away from the, the, the binary, the, the opposites, the duality of this world into awareness. So the door which opens nearest to this reality is when we ask the question, can the perceiver be perceived? Because everything we see in front of our eyeballs, all these sensory objects, everything, that's us, the perceiver, uh, perceive this world in front of us. So, and then behind the eyes, we perceive another reality, one of feelings and thoughts and memories. What Blake really meant was when he became aware of the other I with a capital E or eyes with a capital E. So it's not this conscious state of eyes open and eyes closed perception, not the external and internal states. Instead, the door to awareness is when we create an openness to where whether the perceived is a something or a noting, you know, so uh, like, is this awareness? It can't be some kind of intellectual door, some kind of philosophical intellectual level perceiver, because that's biased, a, a biased perspective. So when we open this creative door, what happens is that the perceiver and the object of perception both appear at the same time. And then this language that I'm using and speaking just disappears. So we're silent when we become aware of the vastness of awareness. This is the real perceiver. So language is no good for describing the experience, the, the awe of awareness. It can only be given words that are uh, inexplicable or words like inexplicable because the binary mind wants to hold on maybe say what the experience is not, which is why we have so much philosophy that talks about the not or the negative negative um, uh, wording 
in in language uh, like the no thing, the not thing, all this. But language doesn't work for the realization. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like a train. You know, the train is running, and this question, "Can the perceiver be perceived?" slams on the brakes of the train or mind, but it keeps moving even when there's no energy being injected into it. So it takes time to stop. So when we are in awareness, the thoughts, the, the mind keeps fighting to try to explain what is happening when it cannot explain this open door. So identity, language, they, they lose their power. And so awareness comes when we wait, when we, when we meditate and wait for the mind, and that's the, the train to exhaust itself. So the ego and body want to keep moving, just like the train. Uh, that way they, they, they exist by moving. But, but when you stop and become aware, whether it's looking at, like, look, like looking at a duck like Wendell Berry and calling awareness the grace of the world, or whether we call it awareness, what we are conscious of is that awareness is outside of the body and in it everywhere because it's the end of the ego or the mind so the brakes of a train are the beginning of the end of the ego when you sit down and watch when you embrace the world by doing nothing in the in the silence so the ego doesn't want you to do nothing it wants you to be busy because that's how it exists to keep moving and attaching you to fear what i call the wall of walls in earlier episodes um so this the ego mind wants you to attach to attachment you know it's a very buddhist thing attachment and um so personhood so the the so the ego wants you to attach to personhood and uh, a country that you come from or the role you have in your family or how much you earn you know so how's awareness with that uh, in co in comparison well it's the opposite it's it's nothing and everything the witness it's the witness uh the perceiver but it's also the perceiver of the perceived and then it's nothing again so it exists and exists when we watch uh, when we perceive without the ego and the body and this is the door that wendell berry opens in his poem stillness not insecurity peace not fear why he gets up out of that bed is to embrace and become a part of stillness again not part of insecurity and fear and infiniteness the infiniteness of the open door uh, identity uh, personhood and victimhood uh, the despair for the world as he put it nowhere nor to be seen anymore so the grace the, the that he talks of is is the grace of awareness basically well, from what i can glean or what i what i see in in that poem so so and for me that's the the great creative act is the stability of awareness you know you create all a a practice and a process like i was saying before and these doors into 
focus and limits and, and balance. And you do this by creating a space for yourself to be aware. So this, this stability of awareness, and it's difficult to arrive at. And so Barry sees, but not with his eyes. And again, what I was talking about when I talked about Blake. So instead, he awakens into awareness by trusting what is really in front of him. And the despair of the world Barry talks of wants the fear to enter into us, not the awareness. Because the fear wants to close the door of awareness and build walls all around your consciousness, away from creativity. Because that's how it defines itself, that's how it exists. So it wants you to fail again and not trust awareness to open doors instead of um, he wants you to create walls of polarities. And, and Barry, to kind of paraphrase or quote bits of, of his poem together, so for a time he rests in the grace of the world and is free. And he's free because he's experiencing pure or absolute awareness, a joyous emptiness, the, the infinite, what some call the infinite. So this is... A, for me, this is a gift. This is, this is grace, a gift for, which is a sacred thing in itself. And it's a gift from doing nothing. And that can only open in an experimental way, a creative doing. And this knowing is only experiential. You know, I could tell you that awareness brings this and Barry can tell you this in his poem and Blake can tell you this in his poetry or countless others can say that this is my experience but you're never going to believe it until you experience it yourself. And you only arrive and rest in the grace of the world when you are aware initially of awareness. So when you open the door to one of the most creative questions there is, again... Can the perceiver be perceived? And this awareness, this, this mindful way of being, which Barry and so many before him, like Blake and others, is why this creative form of awareness is often understood as something sacred. So to say it's sacred means it's something to be honored in a sense because we have to honor aspects of ourselves to be in the world of a mindful way. And that'd be a capital M mindful in the sense of uh, what Thich Nhat Hanh would call mindful. Not about the brain or the mind, but being mindful of what's inside. So one of these aspects is creation. or And this is why we have gods of creativity in every continent, um, every country. Uh, where I come from in Ireland, an example would be Briggy or, or Brig, uh, who, you know, Christianity would have colonized us and turned into St. Bridget, you know. Um, she was called the Exalted One. Uh, you could see her as uh, an adaptation of the Dawn Goddess, like a dawn being another symbol of creativity because she creates the day from the darkness again this whole light and darkness cave thing 
So it delivers us from darkness, you could say, out of the classical cave of, or platonic cave again. So Brig is associated with healing and spring and fertility and poetry and smithcraft. And an even more famous example would be the Muses, who well, we, we used and named the rooms in our retreat after. If you, this is the first time you come into this podcast, uh, our retreat was in the south of France, and we ha had it for about 20 years. It's still going, but uh, each room was called after one of the Muses. And because they represented different arts and we thought that was a cool idea but getting back to uh, this idea of sacredness um, in reference to creativity this kind of spiritual inv invocation from the muses you know even even someone like Hephaestus can be seen as representing aspects of of creation like he literally forged or created uh, beautiful jewelry or objects and weapons and again this as i said this is this is not just ireland or greece and rome and in egypt they have isis and hathor uh the aztec gods there's so many of them i can't pronounce their names or even recall their names but they they have many the hindu goddess uh saraswati or again going back to the greeks the athena apollo dionysus and then there's other places like Hawaii, you know, they have Lono. And so it goes on. So if we don't, you know, respect these aspects of ourselves, the, these, these um, creative aspects, uh, then we're punished in some way, at least uh, from these uh, stories, these old stories of um, manifestations of, of creativity, these gods that are symbolic forms of creativity because um, these aspects are our are, are gods are our internal aspects of our creative selves that are expressed in these eternal manifestations or, or images and and stories because you know each religion has its own creation story and then its own gods to honor so as to receive inspiration and creativity into into your life so when people take these stories literally then they they they, they lose the profound insights and inspirations the, the the door to a sacredness and awareness these stories are trying to tell us about ourselves um to get us away from the distractions you know the distractions of the blue screens and all the sort of mental dross that it we have to deal with nowadays but um barry or would say it's it's better says it a bit better in that poem i suppose um and there is another poem that he wrote um called how to be a poet and then he puts in brackets to remind myself and it, that comes from his collected new collected poems and I, I'm actually going to read that as well because it's very relevant to, to what I'm trying to talk about here. So this is how it goes. Make a place to sit down. Sit down. Be quiet. You must depend upon affection, reading, knowledge, skill. 
more of each than you have. Inspiration, grow, work, growing older, patience. For patience joins time to eternity. Any readers who like your poems, doubt their judgment. Breed with unconditional breath the unconditioned air. Shun electric wire. Communicate slowly. Live a three-dimensioned life. Stay away from screens. <laughs> Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are so... There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Accept what comes from silence. Make the best you can of it. Of the little words that come out of the silence, like prayers prayed back to the one who prays, make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. So, you know, historically we used to always ask the ancestors to help us with awareness or ask the creative God for help with creativity. And we've lost this, this kind of sacred uh, pact or this sacred silent speech as such. And, you know, I always talk about the Romans and the Greeks because that's kind of my education and background on. So I... So the Romans had these things called lares, or the spirits of, 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 of the dead family, of your dead family, which, which meant um, you acknowledged and honoured them daily. And that gentleman I mentioned just before, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the Zen Buddhist, and in Zen Buddhism they, they, they also mention uh, or speak to awareness of those who went before us too again the ancestors so the Romans had this kind of cupboard or I suppose a, a shrine in their home uh, the Lararium with, with little statuettes you know for the spirits of the family and the spirits of the home as well as the Lares who protected the community and so there was often daily prayers and offerings were made to the Lares during the year and again what, what Barry uh, wrote there of the little words that come out of the silence like prayers prayed back to the one who prays make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came so that's what takes us away from this uh, silence so what takes us away from this silence this this creative awareness um, well that's what I would call distractions or you know, the opposite of silence is noise, so noise in all its forms. So the walls that I talked about before, like the blue screens or social media, all of this electrifying, something he talked about in that poem, it's like avoid electric, electric cables and wire, um, because they disturb the silence. So day-to-day -day activities can be distractions too, uh, or walls but since the introduction of the iPhone just to use an example um, kids in in America teens are much more likely to say something like oh, a lot of the time I feel lonely or 
we often feel left out of things. And this isn't me just uh, picking this up off the street, which I presume we we hear a lot of kids saying it, but that comes from a book by um, uh, Jean M. Twenge. And she writes that teens are nearly always connected, but are grown up less rebellious and less happy. And basically being completely unprepared for adulthood nowadays. So that, because they're also uh, getting less sleep because they're always on their devices. And a lot of them are bringing their phones to bed with them, uh, irrespective of the fact that they need them for an alarm, but more because it makes them feel better, which is uh, quite strange from the what I experienced growing up as a kid. Um, another example of that would be again at our retreat in France there was an American artist who used to come a lot and she would call um, getting off the screens having a technological sun up and sundown so she switches devices off before she paints at least and at least an hour then before she goes to bed so she gets a lot of painting done and she thinks it's because she gets off the machines so we, um, especially this younger generation, have to be like our, um, I suppose, bookending our days, you know, and book, and then book beginning our days as well. Like the beginning of your work day, uh, there's no blue screens for a period of time. So the brain knows it has to slow down and give creative, creatively or at the end of the day, stop and then rejuvenate itself. And as a, as a naturopath told me once, you, you have to train the brain, uh, you have to train the body to decompress, and it takes time. And it doesn't happen in a day or two. It's like the train I talked of earlier. If it's been driving fast all day and you slam your feet in the brakes, then you, you come to a sudden shock and stop. And if you ease your feet gently off the brakes, uh, you'll eventually come to a standstill or you'll come to stillness. But you can't get to stillness immediately. It's gradual. It's, it's trained. And it's a funny thing, in Ireland, just, just like every country, I suppose, there used to always be what they call the Shomer Kuhn which is the the quiet room where you sat beside the fire and crocheted or read. And, you know, this idea of quietness and silence, we've, we've lost these quiet rooms, these quiet sa- sacred spaces. And, you know, for creators, it's extraordinarily important to have these quiet sacred spaces. Um, especially now since all these noisy screens have invaded them. And of course, you know, I mentioned systemic stuff there earlier, but if you think of capitalism, um, I talked about this at length uh, in a different episode, episode 14, Um, but, you know, capitalism doesn't value stillness. Uh, It values speed. Uh, constant motion. Again, it's like a high-speed train. And technology has sped everything up, but you can't speed up the imagination because the imagination works 
with the presence of stillness. And stillness is not online. If you're online, you're not in line with imagination. And as I said in an earlier episode on imagination, imagination literally means to picture oneself or to image oneself or to imagine oneself, which is a which is a real understanding of creation to investigate and picture from yourself. Create from your images, your memories, your imagination. So it's that visionary Blakeian place where uh, visions create mental concepts that are not actually tangible to the senses, but are there and present and nevertheless coming out of the sacred silence of awareness. So you can't imagine a new reality if you're online and in the noise of the internet. A place that wants you to produce the next thing now and again in a few months, not in years. But productivity, it's, it's not the field of imagination because more products or more books or paintings, uh, creations uh, afforded by the advent of the ever increasing speed again of the internet, that's not the path to the imagination. That's the path to commodification and capitalizing on product, not creating art. So the so-called disruptors really are that. They disrupt the imagination with their Amazonification of our imaginative worlds. So speed, this idea of progress and speed and capitalism is everywhere. But I still like to think there are people who value time, uh, like Wendell Berry, and taking time to create something in silence, out of the silence, in a, in a prayer-like state of awareness. What some would call flow, I suppose, something I talked about in earlier episodes. But if the form in which, which we share our images, um, if it's canvas or wood, disappears, we'll still have the image. It's narrative or lack of narrative. So if if book objects transform um, from paper and ink into e-books, then we'll, we'll still have the narrative, the poem, this the story. And, you know, why is that? Well, because ever since our beginnings around the, the silent, quiet, crackling cave fire, we've told each other stories to understand ourselves, to understand our rites of passage, to understand our common thoughts or our common sensations and feelings and emotions and these spiritual evolutions. We all still need the stillness away from the digital noise, but it's not talked about this idea of sacredness and awareness away from these distractions. Even after overdosing on blue screens, we always know we are hankering after stillness. This, this, there's an absence of stillness. Um, so I, I suppose another way of looking at it would be, you know, if you think of this, this concept of velocity of money and in economics, they have what they call the, con the 
velocity of money where the poor spend everything they earn or have and oftentimes much more than that and conversely where the rich can never spend all the money they have because it's always making money so the velocity of a poor person is very fast with money and the velocity of money for a rich person is extraordinarily slow and it just keeps getting slower so money is about speed too literally where where time is money and if you're unable to invest some of what you earn then you're literally living in the fast lane to use another cliche so as i talked about in the episode on capitalism how are we supposed to live in a society where most of us are forever speeding along to try to decrease our velocity of our spending and so the question then would be to ask perhaps whether there's a velocity of creativity, a velocity of the imagination, because some are able to make the time to invest in their creations, where others it is just very difficult for many different reasons. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is if you go to bed straight after being on blue screens, after working, after being, uh, you know, frenetically active, after probably too much time on the fast train, you know, uh, how are you supposed to think your brain is going to react? It's going gonna, it's gonna to keep you awake. That's why people aren't sleeping. Because the brain needs a ritual, a habit, uh, a sacred space like the Romans had in front of a, cu- a cupboard or a berry where, he, where the woodrake rests. A place to go and to slow down. And the next day, will you be able to get back to your work, revived, ready to put in another good day if you haven't gone to that space, if you've gone on to the noisy space online? So the obvious answer is no. Not if you don't bookend your day. And then, of course, when you don't do that, Uh, then we replace it with drugs or alcohol and all the rest of it, you know. And and they're seen as as addictions. So what the, you know, blue screens are an addiction too. So what the, they're only beginning to understand that now. Or what the Buddha called cravings, you know. So if you wake up in the morning and start texting, then how are you supposed to create? So I suppose the question we have to ask ourselves is what are, we have to become aware of what our distractions are. Uh, Like what do you do first thing in the morning? Do you watch the news? Or read, read it on Twitter or Facebook? Or do you answer emails straight away? So your mind ego loves this, loves the internet, loves this distraction. And as soon as you go online, you're lost. Because you're not going in line, I suppose you could say going online so creation goes out the window so uh, this gets back to some of the stuff that I was talking about before some of the myths so if people falling into the suffering artist or uh, the drunk getting drunk to create um, or smoking like a train you know Uh, I used to do both of them myself I thought it was part of my identity as a writer when I was younger. And, you know, obviously I found out that that was bullshit and that it was a myth I created for myself out of myths that I've, I'd seen. 
uh, what other writers had gotten up to. So neg- negative myths are a, are a distraction from the work. And again, it's all about balance, as I said before. And, you know, stuff like alcohol in moderation can actually be good for you. Just look at the, the reservatrol and Fre- the French and the Italians get when they drink red wine. So look at how a, you know, uh, last one can chill a person out at the end of the day. But again, it's balance. And it's the same thing with these damn blue screens. So no blue screens in the morning unless you're creating with them. And there's even programs you can download to stop you from being able to go online. You know, take the first 30 minutes to let the problem or chapter or business plan or construction project or, I don't know, painting, you know, to sit in your head as you meditate or as you drink your coffee, or as you do your yoga. So something may not come every time, but the more you train your brain, the more you become aware, then the more inspiration will show up. And it's a win-win situation. Um, You get back uh, wasted time, and you start doing what you love. So it's like two reasons. It's a win-win. And so then genius or your subconscious or what I'd call inspiration has the space to appear. And I suppose another way of looking at it would be to ask the question, like, what do you, what do, you do when you're stressed? Do you go down the YouTube rabbit hole, you know, or do you get sucked into the Facebook feed or, you know, whatever it is? And, you know, what, how about using that time when stressed to turn to what you love? to create and like I was talking before journals or notebooks put it in a notebook write down the stress meditate on it or be aware of it sit with it in that silent sacred space I was talking about so if we add up all our little distractions and the minutes become hours or become you know days they become a huge hurdle to getting creative a huge wall so we have to protect ourselves from distractions with bookends and what some call, like I refer to technological avoidance tools or some kind of behavioral architecture. So so basically, awareness is one of the greatest anti-distraction tools, the greatest doors away from these walls. Um, because distractions are systemic from you know, from smaller systems to larger ones. And we have to become aware of the systems and share that awareness with each other as well. Even if it's disagreeable and difficult to talk about because of the condition we've, or the conditioning we've all been, you know, in inverted commas, educated by. So it's true awareness of the systems or institutions. We can then have compassion for other human beings who have never read about or discussed or experienced these distraction systems by being aware. So then we can bring our awareness to the personal or help others bring their awareness to the personal and to observe what's right in front of us. Again, right in front of our eyes. And then by doing that, we can go see what's behind our eyes. And, you know, I spoke of different religions before, but all the mystics of every religion return to this, irrespective of whatever religion it is. You know, every poet practices this. And great 
great creators inspire their creations with it. And it's always the same thing, awareness. And awareness comes from having that sacred space. But so, you know, and, you know, for one minute, go to your, whatever your sacred space is in the silence and do any of a few things. Just meditate or watch or listen or do an asana or breathe. Just watch your breath. And it seems very simplistic, but it's something we don't do, a lot of us. So, yeah, and I know that, you know, today a lot of people are afraid of solitude. You know, you don't want to be alone. It's, we're, we're trained not to be alone now. You always got the screen or the phone on us. So it's, it's just not acceptable. So many of us are so afraid to be alone with ourselves that we create noise all around us. Why do you think people have so many TVs in their house? They've got one in the kitchen, one in the living room. Some of them have them in the bedrooms, you know. And then the social media is surrounding you all the time with your phone. So diversion and noise, basically it keeps us from being aware. And it's a very simple solution. Uh, but there's not a lot of us can do it. And that's to switch off the noise, you know. So, for a poem, it could be the red flowers and the nettles, or, you know, the accidental sunlight on a stem or stone in winter. For, you know, isn't that what reality is? Something fleeting. It's never all the time, but more moment to moment. So something that just happens when we're busy doing something with our lives, whether it's experienced that we're the birth of a first child or, you know, meditating on the blooming of a, of a flower or, or idea. It appears, um, but it doesn't just appear if we're not aware of what is appearing. And, of course, you know, it's this, this is hard to do today because people are just so busy being busy, you know. Okay, it reminds me of that uh, Kierkegaard quote in either or of, where he talks about of all the ridiculous things, the most ridiculous seems to me to be busy, to be a man who is brisk about his food and his work. And, you know, when you get away, or when you get out of the way, when you meditate, when you listen to that you that's out of the way of you, uh, when you watch, that little voice of inspiration then comes. So many curators do this when they're with other people, you know, they're quiet. Um, you know, they can do their creativity when others are around. But why are they quiet? So because they create a quiet space even amidst people. Because they watch and listen to others and then transform what they've seen into novels or philosophies or business plans. So novelists and screenwriters are notorious for this especially when it comes to stealing dialogue from real life. But, so I suppose uh, we have to make the effort because it's an effort to train our mind, to develop awareness, what some, as I said before, call mindfulness. So to be more loving to what it is all around us and then let the work lead us. So if you show up consistently with your awareness, and so will inspiration. And 
Anyway, as Picasso put it, if you do, if you know exactly what you're going to do, what's good of good in doing it? You know, so I suppose document your moments of awareness. Again, the notebooks are what Aristotle called each moment of being. You know, these moments can be transformed into creations, like a painting of a fisherman's line about to touch the water on, on a lake. That's a moment of being. It's just about to go into the water. Or, you know, famous example would be the French photographer Cartier-Bresson, when he has that um, man jumping over a puddle. It's, 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 it's so famous, it's become almost mythic. And that's, again, him catching a moment. Um, and, you know, he didn't catch that um, by, not, by um, a lack of awareness. He was aware. He had to be completely in what he was doing. So be aware of what is around you. And engage those realities with your awareness. Um, so they become inspirations to your creation. And not walls against it. You know, Picasso painted Guernica because of the horrors of war. And Tolstoy wrote Anna Karenin because he wanted to understand. When he, After reading that newspaper article about the woman that killed herself, he wanted to know why a woman would throw herself under a train. So he tried to discover the why through a novel. So with awareness, creators, you know, create their own worlds, their own system, as William Blake called his own mythical creation. But to Blake and later on Jung and then Joseph Campbell and others, awareness meant recognizing myths and their powerful interpretations and meanings how they allow the individual to evolve. So Blake's awareness manifested itself in his wonderful mythic poems and engravings, you know, which I've mentioned before many times. But so it's, it's, it's about watching how your thoughts and emotions create walls within your reality, wherever you live, you know, by being aware of what is in your mind, you know, by being aware of what it is, uh, your mind is doing, you can find ways to move through the walls, away from what Nietzsche called the herd instinct. And, you know, each individual, it's very difficult not to get into that herd instinct and to find those sacred spaces of silence. So creation comes when you become aware that the rational is not all, it's not all there is. Because if we are aware enough, irrational enough, uh, to get inspired, to get mad, then we create the world anew again. We recreate meaning out of the seemingly meaningless, um, the unlanguaged, or stuff that can't be expressed in language. Like so many mystics, from Rumi to any mystic you can think of that expresses true poetry or true true whatever form it is they're trying to express it to express that silence and so i know i've been going on a while now but there's there is one last thing i want to address as far as sacredness and awareness are concerned when we create um you know there's this there's a song the song of the partisans uh, it's a very sacred 
song to a good friend of mine, Sad of France. And it was the most popular song of the French resistance fighters in World War II. And my friend, my friend's uncles were resistance fighters. And her father was in a, you know, in a POW camp and a concentration camp. So for her, it's a song about the life and death struggle for national liberation. And they almost made the song the national anthem in France after the war. So when I told her that Leonard Cohn had created his own version of the song, she was outraged. You know, she doesn't listen to much modern music. Um, to her, uh, him making a song of that was sacrilegious. Uh, he touched on something sacred and was denigrating it to her, from her perspective and her family's perspective and denigrating their resistance to fascism. And, you know, this is a very calm and intelligent woman, uh, but, but it, this upset her. And she said people died to write that song about people who died for liberty. And she said there should be a law against profaning creations like that because it's a lack of respect for the love and the sacrifice all these people or all those people that she knew and didn't know that made during the war. Another example of that from the side of France would be the Romany Gypsies. Are, you know, they have this extraordinary religious music. It's extraordinarily beautiful. And when some of them recorded their music and released an album, the rest of the, their people were outraged. Because yet again, to the gypsies, the music is sacred. It's private. It's, it's you know, basically from what the word sacred means, it's set apart from the mundane and uh, the so-called real. It's a reality that's theirs. Uh, not that they own it, it's an honoring of it. So... I suppose the question then to ask ourselves is what is set apart to you? What is sacred to you? Because whatever it is, it's probably a good place to create from, a good place to be aware from. Um, you create what Heidegger calls a clearing, a place to think, uh, pure thinking. Again, going back to the very beginning when I was talking about thinking in the West, it's always a lot about thinking as opposed to uh, being mindful or meditative. So but you go to this place of thinking, this pure thinking, not declaring anything, um, to this placeless place apart from the noise where you can have an opening, uh, a lightning where openness allows you to shed light, where everything that becomes present and absent at the same time, that opening in the forest set apart from the rest of the trees. And it's a beautiful metaphor. And, you know, so a lot of creators talk about the revelatory experience of creating, about it being a holy experience, a spiritual experience. So... A creation like the Song of the Partisans can be a sacred creation to 
a creative, not just a creator, creating it. So this idea of sacredness and awareness and understanding that from your own personal perspective. So you can pray to the muses like the Romans did or the Greeks and Homer did, you know, invoking the muses at the beginning of his books. Or don't pray to anything, but but honor something, the memory of someone, someone you loved. Honor yourself. It's better than honoring medals and windfalls or awards, especially when you're trying to create. Because with honor and awareness, uh, creation becomes sacred. It becomes meaningful. It becomes important. And that's not just to you, but to everyone. So, thanks for listening. Uh, I started with a lovely poem from the great American writer and activist. But as always, I'm going to end this episode with an Irish proverb. And this one literally means, if you were to translate it nearly word for word, it would be, God never closed the door without opening another one. Yeah. So, Nyorun, Nyordun, Dia Doris Riev, Naroskul Shekhyanela. Nyordun, Dia Doris Riev, Naroskul Shekhyanela. So, uh, as I always say, this podcast is supported by you out there. Uh, through my Patreon page. So if you want to support the podcast, uh, please head over to patreon.com forward slash John Fanning where you can get um, this uh, day early and extra episodes when I get time to start putting them up there. And, you know, the cliche of, you know, for the price of a pint or a cup of tea, if I haven't bored you to tears, then... Would you sat across the table and give me a conversation? Or give me the time to talk? Or to be interested in what I'm saying? Anyway, if you can't afford it, that's grand too, you know. You can just listen to for free. But please subscribe to it or on YouTube, iTunes or wherever you listen to it. And leave the review on iTunes too. Reviews are the way that people are going to learn about it. Um, not me going around telling people to listen to it. If other people go around telling people to listen to it, then they will. Um, and I'm sure there's one of these episodes, I'm up to 25 of them now, that uh, must have been of some kind of interest to you or some interest to somebody you know. So please pass it on. Um, if you're looking for the episodes, you can get them in all the usual places, you know, iTunes and all that. Or go to my website at johnfanning.me and you just click f uh, podcast there and you can get to the Twitter stuff and Instagram stuff and all that there on my website too. So as I always say, you know, it's been it's been fun sharing this stuff, uh, getting it out there, so I'm trying to formulate some of this stuff that I feel is very important, uh, trying to honour it, you know. Um, so take care out there, be healthy, uh, try to take care of yourself amidst all this pandemic messing, and uh, try to be as benevolent as you can. Schlan live August Gennarium Bauer live.